0: Hello, my friends. It's time for Greenwich, a town for all seasons. Congratulations. If you're looking for the best Greenwich, Connecticut history fix online, you've come to the right place. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Jeffrey Jeffrey Sorry, I am a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a place long known as the Gateway of New England. And it is is my esteemed pleasure to welcome you to the 5th of August year 2022 episode of the one and only Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast. As always, I'm really, really glad that you could join us uh, for today's show. Boy, I gotta tell you, you know what? Summer is just bright. I mean, it's just breezing by quickly. It's amazing how time is flying by. I guess it means we're all having a good time. I know I am. <laughs> I hope you are too. Now, Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. And it is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities uh, for so many reasons. Uh, and uh, this podcast is is dedicated to exploring that uh, notability and uh, dynamism that makes Greenwich, Connecticut so special. Indeed, it's a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years, as mine do, or even 400 seconds, which really isn't that long of a time, or somewhere in between. Whether you're here to stay, you're just passing through, whatever the case may be, we welcome you with open arms. You're very, we're very glad to have you, and like it or not, you're a part of our history, so congratulations. Now, the Greenwich of Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by my good friend, Mr. Peter F. Alexander. He is a landscape architect and the principal of Site Design Associates the Long Island Sound Institute, which is a project of St. Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, my good friend Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On today's show, we'll travel back in history to a period the late town historian William E. Finch, Jr., referred to as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, when the word Greenwich was synonymous with the word millionaire. The Greatest State's Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book was published by the Junior League of Greenwich and inspires today's segment. Rocklin, a waterfront Norman-style fieldstone retreat in Old Greenwich, was like none other, with grand vistas of Long Island sound And was built in 1895 by Edwin and Alice Binney, whose family would go on to make remarkable contributions to the community. As Rob Marchant of Greenwich Time reported a few years ago, Edward Binney made a fortune in the production of carbon black, a prime ingredient in automobile tires and in petroleum and natural gas. The couple was associated with the invention of the Crayola Crayon. He devoted great attention to his family home as well as to the small community of Old Greenwich. Benny and his wife later donated much of their land to the town of Greenwich for parkland, which still bears their name today. In other words... Have you heard of Minnie Park? Well, there it is. And you're going to learn more. Now, one of Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard's talents was storyteller published under the pen name Ezekiel Lemondale. Don't ask me where he got that from and about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff. In today's segment uh, on the Judge's Corner, we're going to feature his comments uh, that he wrote about Greenwich Harbor. Now, before or Greenwich Before 2000 is an updated revised edition of Before and After 1776, the comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich. What happened from years 1686 to 1691? Well, my friends, you're going to tune in and find out. On today's crimes and misdemeanors, we're going to provide a new twist. In 1907, there was a cry for more policemen in what was then known as the Borough of Greenwich. At that time, Greenwich had one of the smallest police forces in the area, and one the town had was terribly overworked, and there were a lot of burglaries going on. So this is a rather interesting uh, uh, article that I found, and I think you're going to find it very very entertaining, I certainly did. Now, from his column Greenwich Life as it is and was, Edwin Edwards shared with his readers a history of market boats and the upper landing on the Mianus River, which was at one time the center of business in Greenwich. And this was years and years before Greenwich Avenue would rise to prominence. In 1908, automobiles were, new, uh, were a new and exciting phenomenon in Greenwich, And in August of that year, an automobile carnival was planned and proposed. Prizes would be offered for the best decorated automobile. It was envisioned uh, as a parade of sorts, taking drivers, their automobiles and passengers around the roads of uh, Greenwich. And interestingly enough, all planned for a moonlit night. You'll be interested in hearing about that. I'll have more about Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place, celebrating the 90th anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society. I'll have news of exhibits, activities, and events for the public. My friends, it's the 5th of August, Year 2022, it's hot and sizzling out there on this summer day. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and I will have all this and more as history continues to unfold. So stick around. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander Landscape Architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience, coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632 Again, that's 203-869-8632 or you can email him at Peter a at sitedesignassociates.com A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's L-I-S-I-H I-2023 at gmail.com or call area code 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AM USA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct the stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's a, uh, that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-467. or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets, with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at JeffreyMatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Well, it's time to step back in time to the period of Greenwich, Connecticut's history between the years 1880 and 1930. Now, these five decades saw the evolution of Greenwich from a simple farming community to one bit more worldly, a town with strong ties to New York City. The wealthy who came to Greenwich during this period were attracted to Greenwich, and they brought with them a new level of sophistication that was reflected in the construction and building of some of the most incredible country estates that you could imagine. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, which was chartered in 1959, an organization that has played an incredibly impressive role in fostering valuable projects and services for the town as no one else has done before or since there was one project that stood out at least in my view anyway, and that was the publication of the greatest state Greenwich, Connecticut 1880 to 1930 book. Now, my very good friend, the late town historian William Finch Jr., referred to this period of Greenwich, Connecticut's history as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, an age when the word Greenwich became synonymous with millionaire. Now, the Great Estates Greenwich, Connecticut 1880-1930 to 1930 book is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library system. In other words, you can take it out and, uh, and enjoy it at home, uh, thanks to our good friends over at the Greenwich Library. You can learn more about the Junior League of Greenwich at jlgreenwich.org. They're located at 231 East Putnam Avenue in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District you want to call them and you can call 203-869-1979 so we're going to step back in time of course and the estate the great estate i should say that i have chosen for today is one that is known to many people especially in the old greenwich area its name rocklin its principal owner was edwin Binney. the original architect In 1895, well, we're not sure, but the architect for its reconstruction in 1927 was George Chappell. So, sit back, relax, and let's travel back to Rockland. In the autumn of 1888, Edwin Binney, who lived from 1866 to 1934, whose family would play a leading role in shaping the town of Old Greenwich, explored the rocky stretches of its shore. From Tomac Cove on the Stamford border to the Greenwich Inn at the foot of Sound Beach Avenue, only a tiny oysterman's watchhouse interrupted his view of Long Island Sound and the distant land beyond. In January 1889, he had purchased a promontory of rock on the shore from Oliver Ford, whose family had farmed at the rocky coast for generations. During the spring, Minnie began to build the first residence on that stretch of the shore, a small shingled cottage that would be a summer retreat for his New York-bound family. Over the next six years, he added more land and two other houses to what was to become a family enclave. In 1895, the original shore house was moved inland, and work began on Rockland. The Binnies, determined to live in Sound Beach, now known as Old Greenwich year-round, needed a more substantial home. Though some area residents questioned their choice of a site where there was, quote, nothing to see, unquote, the Binnies perched their fieldstone house on the edge of the rocky promontory just feet from the sea. The Gambro-roofed, shingle-styled house was approached from the north under a port couture with steep steps, leading to a Norman-style stone tower, which crenellated ramparts and diamond-shaped leaded windows, enclosing a a circular staircase to the upper stories. The living room and two principal bedrooms above looked out over the sound. An octagonal dining room, with Mrs. Binney's sitting room over it, encompassed Encompassed views all the way round to the beach on the western side of the house. The kitchen wing, with the master bedroom above and the servants' bedrooms on the third floor, looked toward the beach through a wide galleried porch with white wooden columns, later replaced with stone. A terrace led from the side porch to another off the living room, above which a sunroom was eventually added. The new Rockland was a fitting symbol of the remarkable success Edwin Binney had achieved by his 29th year. Born in Shrub Oak, New York on November 24, 1866, he attended school in Peekskill but left school very early to go to work. One of his first jobs was with a carbon manufacturing company. He tried to continue his education by attending night school in Harlem, but at 17, he became a traveling salesman for a paint company in Springfield, Massachusetts. The following year, he opened a branch office in New York. Then, in 1885 at 19, he and his cousin organized Binney and Smith Company to manufacture carbon black from natural gas. At about this time, he met Alice Steed, who lived from 1866 to 1960 who, like his own parents, had emigrated from England. Alice had studied at what is now Hunter College in New York City and was an English teacher in the New York public schools. On October 26, 1886, they were married, and two years later their daughter Dorothy was born. By this time, the three-year-old Binney and Smith Company was successful enough to allow the Binneys the luxury of a summer cottage, tiny as it was, in Old Greenwich. By 1895, just 10 years after its inception, the Binney and Smith Company had become one of the largest manufacturers of carbon black in the world, and from one tiny cottage on the shore, the estate known as Rockland had grown. Binney and Smith had also begun to diversify. It became a large producer of natural gas and natural gas gasoline. The company introduced colored and industrial crayons and developed a dustless, Crayon for schoolroom use. Over the next 30 years, Binnie's experience in the chemical and natural gas industries led him to become president and a director of Seb's Chemical Company, vice president and a director of the Coltexo Corporation, as well as a director of the Columbian Gasoline Company, the Southern Carbon Company, Piney Oil and Gas Company, Southern Gas Lines Incorporated, Western Carbon Company, Mississippi River Fuel Corporation, and Peerless Carbon Black Company. Despite his increasing corporate responsibilities, Edwin Biddy spent a great deal of time with his family. Two more daughters, Helen and Mary, had been born in 1890 and 1892, respectively, and in 1899, a son, Edwin Jr., nicknamed June, was born. Helen Binnie Kitchell remembers how her father, quote, interpreted, unquote, the sounds of the wild birds for them and taught them to swim and sail. Boating was a favorite interest of the family from early rowboats to the 72-foot cruiser Florendia, built by the family for their backyard, in their backyard in 1917. Bowls and mower, Local naval architects designed it to government standards in case the Navy might need it for war service. Family picnics and outings were regular events, and a, quote, bad-weather playroom, unquote, was built on the third-floor attic, with two trapezes hanging from the rafters. The Benny family had also become very involved in the activities of Old Greenwich, in 1900, they worried that Miss Lockwood's one room schoolhouse just north of the present Lockwood Avenue was inadequate. Serving on a committee with H. O. Havemeyer, A. A. Marks, Henry Frost, William Schofield, and other concerned citizens, Edwin Binney worked for the construction of a two story brick schoolhouse which forms the core of the present Old Greenwich School. But the Binneys were active members of the First Congregational Church. They belonged to the Riverside Yacht Club and played golf at Innis Arden, J. Kennedy Todd's estate. Despite the frenetic building that was changing the appearance of Old Greenwich and its shoreline, life at Rockland before World War I continued at a gentle pace. Though the house had been piped for gas during its construction in 1895, This convenience was many years in coming. Kerosene lamps had to serve until electricity came in 1907-1908. D.P. Van Wickle, whose small grocery store was on Shore Road, visited each morning in his horse and buggy, taking orders for eggs, flour, bread, and other staples returning later in the day to deliver them. Over the years, the Binnies had acquired several homes and lots, as well as a squash court, a garage, and tennis courts. As each child married, she or he was given a house or lot so that the area became an enclave of bennies. In 1916, the acquisition of Oak Grove Beach, to the west of Rockland, completed their dominion over the lane. During this period, the bennies began to look for other areas to develop. A 1300-acre pre-Civil War plantation in the pine woods of North Carolina was the focus of their efforts for some time. Later they acquired a winter home in Fort Pierce, Florida, amid 300 acres of citrus groves. Benny was instrumental in opening the harbor at Fort Pierce and built a large or a huge storage plant to prepare and preserve fruit for refrigerated steamers. He became chairman of the board of the Fort Pierce Port Commission, a director of the Fort Pierce Financing and Construction Company, and chairman of the board of the St. Lucie County Country Bank. In 19, in, on January 8, 1927, fire broke out at Rockland. The firemen were quickly alerted, and neighbors helped douse the flames. The wooden part of the structure was destroyed. Alice Binney, along with architect George Chappell, supervised Rockland's rebuilding. A new north wing was added, incorporating basement garages, a new kitchen and dining room on the first floor, and three servants' bedrooms above. The old kitchen in the south wing became a library, and the old octagonal dining room became a study. The Norman Tower was enclosed by the new wing so that only a quarter section could be seen from outside. The portcouture was not replaced. The the open entrance steps were enclosed, and the front door was brought out flush with the new wing. A new second story was built of honey-colored stucco and stone, and the roof was rebuilt in slate. Never again would Rockland succumb to flames. The roof line was lowered, the third floor rooms eliminated, and the horizontal line of the porches was emphasized to produce a sleeker house. The New Brooklyn's interior retained most of its old features while incorporating many improvements. The dark oak wainscoting on the living room, in the living room, and the former dining room now a study remained. A pair of oak pocket doors with a stained glass representation of Rockland done around 19, about 1915 separated the two rooms. The living room's beamed ceiling was strengthened at this point by encasing massive steel beams. Classical columns in dark oak were added to the walls for their support. The fireplace was of rough fieldstone with a bronze plaque of the heads of Edwin and Alice Binney, sculpted in high relief, hanging above it. The new dining room had a plastered, coved ceiling and a tiled corner fireplace. A door to the terrace opened to the opposite corner, and the room shared the incomparable sea views of the living room. To the former kitchen were added a fireplace mantel and bookshelves with egg and dart moldings to create a library with access to the long-covered porch overlooking the beach. The second floor now contained five principal bedrooms with spectacular views joined by a wide hall on the inland side of the house and three servants' rooms over the kitchen. Four bathrooms were constructed with the Square bisque tiles typical of the 1920s. Edwin Jr., who had set a world's record while swimming for Yale, had a three foot long tile representation of a diver among the wine and ochre tiles over his bathtub. The two bedrooms above the living room led out to a glassed in sun porch and beyond to an open deck built out over the rocks. The house In plan A, squared C, was but one room deep throughout, so that each room sparkled with the reflected light of the sound. In 1928, the Binneys' tremendous energies were focused on old Greenwich. They bought the land between Sound Beach Avenue and Art Street to create a town park. Edwin Binney deeded the land to the town with the provision that he would be responsible for the landscaping. The area, basically swampland, was filled and a rock-rimmed lake and an island were created. The project occupied the next four years and helped to carry him through the tragic death of his son, June, at the age of 29. On December 17, 1934, just over a year after the dedication of Binney Park, Edwin Binney died of a heart attack near his home in Florida. He was 69 years old. Alice Benny's commitment to Old Greenwich continued for the remaining 26 years of her life. She was a founder and past president of the Greenwich Historical Society. She donated a large sum of money to create the June Benny Memorial Parish Hall, adjacent to the First Congregational Church. She helped finance the purchase of the natural park on Harding Road, a part of the Laddins Rock Farm property, for use by the townspeople. And she was instrumental in obtaining the Hillside Annex to Benny Park. She died at the age of 94 in 1960. Rockland and other Benny homes still stand. They and the parks, the school, and the parish hall are monuments to the energy and vision of Edwin and Alice Stade Benny. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th-century-style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Your next hire is just a coffee away. Hire a good employee. My friends, Coffee for Good in the historic Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church is an on-the-job training platform with Ableis for people with disabilities. Its graduates have the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality service and retail industries. How does coffee for good benefit your business? Well, improve employee retention, increase customer loyalty, assistance with the job transition, on-site job coaches, federal tax credits, skills tailored to your business, and a diverse workforce. I encourage you to speak with Helen Lebrano and Alan Gunsberg, the Employers Advisory Team, at employer at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that Helen Lebrano or Alan Gunsberg, the Employers Advisory Team, at employer at coffeeforgood.org. My friends, learn more at coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Visit Coffee for Good and see them in action. You are listening to the Greenwich Town For All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich A Town For All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Prolific and Gifted Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, writer, a gifted storyteller. He had a remarkable life, one that spanned the end of the 19th century and into the first third of the 20th century here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Now, he wrote under a pseudonym, Ezekiel Lemondale. Don't ask me where he came up with that. I don't know when writing about what he called a Cracker Barrel stuff. His column, The Judge's Corner, was published in the Greenwich News. Now, we're very indebted to Frank Nicholson, who collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles, publishing them in compendium form in a book called Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed, by Frank Nicholson It is available in the Greenwich Library System You might find it elsewhere Maybe on your favorite online bookseller Or um, at the Greenwich Historical Society Bookshop Check it out and see Alright, today is The um, uh, column is uh, number 117 uh, It is dated uh, August, August 27, 1931 It's uh, headline Greenwich Harbor An interesting place Some of the old time sailing yachts The Tweed and Benedict Steam Yachts, some Indian Harbor Yacht Club history. All right, here we go. All right. Greenwich Harbor has been unusually interesting this summer, and how much greater would be the interest if visiting yachts could drop anchor in the upper harbor, where unsightly mudflats now reign supreme. To the great yachts such as the John's Manville steamer with a working force of 40 men, Any anchorage inside of Captain's Island is a harbor, for such vessels require more water than can be afforded by the contemplated excavation of the inner harbor. Such a steamer that has visited the Seven Seas can up-anchor and away at the approach of a southwest hurricane for such disturbances have been known and felt. But with the upper harbor filled with 50-foot yachts within sight of 10,000 people daily from passing trains, their reputation of Greenwich as a port for yachts could, would be widespread. And how our shopkeepers will rejoice in the fat pocketbooks of the marine stewards. At the present time, there is a considerable influx of money from such sources, especially to the gasoline stations and those who carry mechanical supplies. It is a pleasant sight, in the gloaming of these August days to see the yachts prepare for the night. At seven bells, 7.30 o'clock, the sun is sinking behind field point and the tinkle of those bells comes like music across the water. As the sun disappears, the sunset gun at the clubhouse brings down all the national flags. On some of the yachts, where a dinner party is in progress, Various colored Chinese lanterns decorate the vessel. Power boats now outnumber the sailing yachts with their tall and graceful spars. Years ago, the great yachts of that class were the Edimion and the Fleurs de Lis. The former was owned by George Lauder, Jr., and the other belonged to an annual guest at the Indian Harbor Hotel, whose name is forgotten. Charles H. Hall, the secretary, of the American or America's Club, and, and, incidentally, the clerk of the Tombs Police Court, had a large schooner, Captain Henry Hubbard, master. There were many jib and mainsail boats in Tweed's time, and one of them, the Mary Jane, was owned by him. Catboats were numerous. The rig of such boats was far different from the sails of the present-day jib and mainsail boats. The spars were shorter, and the gaff that carried the mainsail was no addition to the grace of the boat, although it may have helped to hold the wind. The first steam yacht to enter this harbor was owned by Boss Tweed. She was built in Northport, Long Island. Her hull was shaped something like an ocean-going tug, but half the size of such a vessel. Her graceful mold was well-nigh destroyed in effect by the box-like structure, which made a large, high, and elegantly furnished saloon. She had side wheels housed in like an old-fashioned ferry boat, and her name, which was displayed on the pilot house in large gilt letters, was the name of the owner. Her speed could not have exceeded 10 or 12 knots. The Oneida Commodore Benedict steamer was not such a yacht, as is built in the present time but was quite a seagoing boat upon which her owner made several voyages up in up the amazon and over to england even in those days sailormen spoke of her as the quote old hooker unquote but she was probably well commanded and had a lot of good luck although on one trip she came near foundering in the north sea once called the german ocean but she had none of those long, low steam lines, or streamlines, of the present day yachts. As a marine social center, she was a great success. Her owner was a good host. He entertained with a lavish hand, and his guest book contained the names of men in the dramatic, political, and literary world. President Cleveland and his young bride in 1884 often reached their summer home, Grey Gables. On Buzzards' Day by the Oneida, and Edward Edwin Booth during his last days of his life was a frequent guest, and it will not be forgotten that the well-known Players' Club of New York was formed in the cabin of the little steamer with such men present as Booth, Thomas Bailey, Thomas Bailey Aldrich, Lawrence Hutton, and William Dean Howells. Benedict was too busy a man in his early manhood. When he lived in East Porchester to give much attention to the sailing of small boats. At least after he moved to the village, he was never seen to personally sail a boat. He rejoiced in the view of the water and the activities of such boatmen as he employed. And it was the same with Tweed. He never held a tiller or made fast the mainsheet, But in those early days, even before the formation of the Greenwich Yacht Club, there were men who gave much attention to the sailing of small boats. Perhaps this more particularly applied to the oystermen who made much of their annual races, which included many sloops owned from Five Mile River, Rowaton, to Mamaronek. The India Harbor Yacht Club, organized in 1889, gave a great impetus to local yachting and brought the club in racing relations with other clubs. A span of 42 years has wrought many changes in the construction and in the sailing rules of racing boats, and the personnel of the club members has entirely changed. A new generation has come into being, almost two, and of the charter members, only four survive. Richard Outwater, Frank Bowne-Jones, George E. Gartland, and E. burton Hart. It may be interesting to recall uh, to mind the original officers of the club as follows. Henry E. Doremus, Commodore. William J. Jones, Vice Commodore. Charles J. Hart, Rear Commodore. Richard Outwater, Secretary. And Frank Bowne Jones, Treasurer. Most, if not all, the early members were real yachtsmen. They knew how to sail a boat the rocking chair brigade has arisen again, and it has added to the social interests of the club. But some of those who were active in the sailing of their own boats and were able to determine the result of a race with mathematical precision were Richard Outwater, Henry E. Doremus, C. Stuart Somerville, H. Hannon, George E. Gartland, Charles T. Wills, Charles E. Sims, Edwin H. Abrams, William Ellsworth, Frederick S. Doramus, Henry C. Aston, George E. Tyson, and his son George J. Tyson, or George G. Tyson, William A. Hamilton, Luke A. Lockwood, John D. Barrett, Frank Bound Jones, William J. Jones, E. Burton Hart, Charles J. Hart, John H. Cornwall, Frank L. Freeman, Francis Burrett, E. Stern Wheeler, D. Malcolm Wynn, Frank Wynn, Morton F. Plant, and John Moeller. William Ellsworth was the son of Captain Joe Ellsworth, who sailed the Puritan in that well-remembered race with the English cutter Janesta. The descendants of many of those early members are now active in the club. Those who have departed are held in loving memory, By the survivors. Patty Silkman is a recently retired Greenwich Public School teacher who taught math and science at Central Middle School for 38 years. Currently, Patty is a storyteller at Greenwich's Myram Schubert Library. The Greenwich Historical Society invites you to enjoy summer story time for preschool children. Join us for stories and music in the gallery and garden, Wednesdays 11 to 11.30 a.m. July 13 through September 28. Reservations requested but not required. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Discover Greenwich Creating a Sense of Place is a fantastic new program by the Greenwich Historical Society, celebrating its 90th anniversary. Well, how about that? Now, you're invited to savor Greenwich's summer breezes with August's Picnic in the Park series. Join us in a celebration of summer as we feature Greenwich's beautiful and historic parks. Mark your calendars and these locations. Are you ready? Sunday, August 14, Bruce Park. Sunday, August 21st, Montgomery Pinetum, And Sunday, August 28th, Binney Park. Get comfortable, meet old friends and new ones as we connect and strengthen our ties to each other and a special place we call home in Greenwich's p- picturesque parks. Now for details and to order your picnic, visit greenwichhistory.org forward slash discover Greenwich. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we talk about crimes that were committed um, in the town of Greenwich's history, uh, going back in, um, in time and doing so um, as we continue to uh, observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, which was actually last year. Now, this time, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, We're not going to talk about crimes being committed, uh, but um, I'm going to bring to your attention a piece that appeared in 1907, in April of that year, in the Greenwich News, and its headline was, Need More Policemen. Not men enough now to cover the borough. (laughs) So this was a call for actually hiring more police officers. Um, It's very interesting, um, especially in this uh, particular uh, time, and um, I thought that I would share it uh, with you. So it goes as follows. Some interesting information for those who are criticizing the force on account of recent burglaries, recent recent. Several burglaries have been committed in the borough. That would be the borough of Greenwich, of course. They were not big burglaries, but they have been remarkably bold ones and have resulted in some uneasiness among the residents of certain quarters of the borough. Consequently, as usually happens, a great cry has been raised by parties interested and disinterested, the burden of which is, quote, Where were the police, quote, unquote? These well-meaning but critical people seem to carry with them the idea that if a man is dressed up in a policeman's uniform and turned loose in a territory of several square miles, he immediately becomes om- omnipotent or omni- omniscient. Oh, omnipotent and omnipotent, and omnipresent. Um, and if he does not know everything which is taking place on the beat which he is expected to cover, that he must be very careless and lazy. Oh, my. Uh, For the benefit of those people, we would venture a little information, which ought to be interesting, which is certainly instructive. The borough of Greenwich contains nearly 10 miles of streets, upon uh, upon of which are houses whose aggregate value is many millions of dollars. Many of these streets are seldom frequented at night and are accessible to all the crooks of the nearby metropolis to guard all this territory we have a police force consisting of a chief a sergeant and four patrolmen let me repeat that for you (laughs) to guard all this territory we have a police force consisting this is in 1907 of a chief a sergeant and four patrolmen let me continue In the judgment of the taxpayers of this borough, these four patrolmen are deemed sufficient to guard all of the property within its limits. One policeman is thought capable of doing the work in the daytime and three at night. Think of it. Three taken to cover 10 miles at night. Just stop and consider. Lay that 10 miles on the post road and it would stretch beyond Larchmont. Would you expect three men to protect that? Such an expectation would not speak very well for your intelligence. <laughs> the village of Portchester covers a territory smaller than that of Greenwich Borough, and the actual value of the property, real and personal, therein contained is less than the amount we have here, yet the Portchester Police, number 14. The borough of Stamford covers no larger territory than this borough, yet the police police force is 21. Do the citizens of these places expect omnipotence from their police force? If they do, their disappointment must be great, for during the past six months, more than twice as many burglaries have been committed in each place as have been perpetuated in this borough. Most of their breaks have been on the main street, And in at least one instance, a safe has been blown. So far from finding fault with our local police, every good citizen should commend them and then use his best endeavors to have the force increased so that every man shall have only a reasonable amount of work to do. And so that we may all well be well protected from those crooks and criminals who are able now to escape the vigilance of our diminutive force. Let every adverse critic consider what each member of the force has to do before complaining any more. Chief Rich, to begin with, has devised a system of telephonic signals which has increased the efficiency of the force a hundred percent. At his own expense, he has installed a switchboard which connects to, with his house or with his home so that he may be available to the public at all hours of the day and night. He, could you imagine doing that today? He is on duty until midnight every night at police headquarters and is very frequently called up and out in all sorts of weather between that hour and daylight. In addition to his duties as chief, he acts as patrolman in the early hours of the forenoon in order to assist the regular men. Chief Antti Talbot is at the switchboard in police headquarters from 11 o'clock p.m. and in the morning turns out in his beat as a patrolman. He more often gets in 12 hours work than less, and a good deal of it is of the sort to draw heavily upon a man's energy. Besides doing their regular work, Chief Rich and Sergeant Talbot are called upon to do an almost incredible amount of clerical work connected with the running of the police system. This alone ordinarily would demand the continuous service of an experienced clerk. Anyone who has watched Oliver James Nedley hustling along the street from signal box to signal box, straightening out tangled traffic on the avenue, answering questions of strangers, watching suspicious characters, warning over speeding autoists, and a 101 other things between stations, can judge whether or not he does a reasonable amount of work. Almost anyone will agree that he does an unreasonably large amount. He is the one man who protects 10 miles of street during the daytime. At night, officers Kramer, Merritt, and Fabie take up the ten-mile route. There is little need of speaking of their duty. When you seek your warm bed at night and hear the pattering of rain on the roof, yawn, you, you, can, you can pull up the blankets with some sense of security, for you know that these men are plodding along outside in the rain and slush on the lookout for molesters of your peace, and continually running the chance of knife thrust or bullet from a surprised crook. No, they don't lead a particularly merry life, nor are they deluged with money for it. The solemn truth is that every member of the force does his duty, and more than his duty. But they are men, not wonder-working gods, and it does not lie within the power of any six men living to properly protect this borough. If the taxpayers of this village wish to sleep safely, they must provide more police. At present, two more patrolmen must be provided if the upper part of the borough, where most of the burglaries have committed, is to be protected. In addition to this, it is essential that some sort of night operator should be at headquarters to watch the switchboard with which the signal boxes are connected so that the sergeant can make his rounds of inspection. For a comparatively small figure, a young man could be gotten for this, who could also attend to the clerical work. One other thing would place the force on a pretty efficient footing. That is the addition of a night watchman for Maple Avenue and North Street. This man need not be uniformed, but the presence of some sort of guardian in that district is absolutely indispensable. Just bear all this in mind, please, and instead of making sarcastic remarks about the police the next time you hear of a burglary, just blame yourselves and go and do your best to have the necessary changes made. That, my friends, was published in the Greenwich News. There is no author, by the way, um, provided, so I have no idea. Maybe it's the editors, who knows. Um, But this was uh, published on April 26, 1907, on page 8. Well, how do you like this? Back in 1908, um, this was announced. It was an automobile carnival. Um, How many of you have been to one of those? (laughs) I don't know. We do have car shows, of course, uh, but um, an automobile carnival. Well, this was uh, something that was published in the Greenwich News back in 1908 on July 10th, to be precise. And I'd like to share this with you. Um, it was for an event in town that uh, was being planned for the month of August of, um, of that year. So here we go. Interest is being worked up this week in a big automobile carnival to be held Here, sometime in August, and so far the promoters are having the very best of success in securing assurances that automobile owners will enter their cars and do all that they can to help the carnival along. The plans, which have not been definitely settled upon as yet is to have two prices offered for the best decorated cars in the parade and a small entry price will be charged to cover this item of expense a moon a, a moonlight night will probably be selected for the event well that would be interesting the parade will probably form at Putnam Avenue with its base on Greenwich Avenue and go down Greenwich Avenue around the station to Art Street and then by the Shore Road to Field Point, then to Bellhaven, up Field Point Road to Rock Ridge and across to North Street and from North Street down to Putnam Avenue again. The review would probably be held on Greenwich Avenue, and it's expected that the governor of the state and many other state and county officials will be present. A committee is being formed of representative businessmen and some residents, with an enthusiastic automobilist in each section of the town, and in the neighboring towns as members of the committee. With nearly 1,000 automobiles already in town and a great many to draw from in the section from and including Bridgeport and New York City, the committee should have very little trouble in bringing into the parade a large number of autos. The opportunity afforded visitors of seeing the village and outlying sections when the houses are all lighted up should do much to boom the town. Merchants would undoubtedly decorate and light up their stores, and there should be plenty of decorating at the homes of people along the line of the parade. It is the intention to make this the finest automobile carnival ever held in this section of the country. It should draw hundreds of automobilists into town on the day of the parade, and hundreds more visitors would be attracted here then. Every citizen of the town who cares for the best interests of the community, should lend his aid to help the affair along. Well, this really would have been interesting. I'm going to look some more into this to see uh, where, it w- when it was um, actually held and where and uh, what happened and so forth. But you can find this in the Greenwich News. The, the article was published on July 10th, 1908, on page seven. Presented by the First Bank of Greenwich and supported by Waterstone on High Ridge. Music on the Great Lawn has been entertaining audiences weekly in the heart of Greenwich Historical Society's campus at 47 Strickland Road. Summer is sizzling. Pack your picnic and enjoy an evening of live music in Bush Holly's Exquisite Historic Gardens. Mark your calendars for Thursday, August 11th, when the Bob Button Band is set to perform. On Thursday, August 25th, get ready for Gunsmoke. Space is limited. Advanced registration is recommended. Members, $10. Non members, $20. Become a Greenwich Historical Society member and receive special rates. My friends, don't put this off any further. The Great Lawn at Bush-Holly House opens 5.30 p.m., concert 6.30 p.m. to 8.00 p.m. Parking is free. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. It's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets have been wowing shoppers this summer. In a class by itself, the tavern garden markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of native and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavors of nutritious, prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. Mark your calendars for Wednesday, August 10th and August 24th. 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. But you know what? Here's a secret. Shh! Early birds are welcomed at 9.30 Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and Tavern Gardens at the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House campus at 47 Strickland Road. Free parking. Tavern Garden Markets are sponsored by Yashmin Lloyds and Compass. Thank you. Well, my friends, it's that time. That time being Greenwich before 2000. I'm referring, of course, to a book that was published as an updated revised edition of another favorite Greenwich history book of mine. That one being specifically before and after 1776, the comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich. Now, Greenwich before 2000 goes a bit further. It goes to the year 1999, and it was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society. And it was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He's a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich. Both he and his family have made numerous charitable requests over the years that have uh, done so much uh, to advance and to preserve the history of the town of Greenwich for present and future generations. The book is available at the Greenwich Library System. If you'd like to borrow it, you are certainly welcome to to, uh, do so. You might find it at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store. Uh, If you're interested, you could always call the store at 203-869-6899 and uh, find out. You could also possibly find it for purchase on your favorite online bookseller. Now, today, because we are still... Uh, pausing to commemorate and observe the uh, Greenwich Founders Day holiday, Uh, today I'm going to uh, share with you uh, excerpts from the Greenwich Before 2000 book for the years 1686 to 1691. So let's get started, shall we? All right. On February 1st of 1686, the deed for the Horseneck Plantation, the area between the Mianus and Byram, Byram Rivers north of the New York line, is secured by title from the Indians. Thirty acres of planted ground fenced in at Coscopneck, Neck, the Indian field, was to be retained. On May 19th of that year, three-acre allotments are granted from the common land to every man who has at least a 70-pound estate. Moving on to the year 1687, on February 16th of that year, the first land division that would be 60 rods north of the country road, which would be uh, Putnam Avenue today, was made. Each of the 51 landowners receives one acre for every 10 pounds of his worth. And on December 13, 1687, the town engages Gershom Lockwood and William Rundle to build a footbridge over the Mianus River and that would be located at Palmer Hill Road. In 1688, on January 13, the first recorded permission to build a grist mill on the upper Mayanus River is granted to Joshua Haight. On May 21, 1688, the town refuses to help destitute people unless they are inhabitants of the town. And on May 21, 1688, The vote to retain Mr. Peck as minister is disputed by several men because of his refusal to baptize their children and other offenses. Mr. Peck disdains the, quote, halfway covenant, unquote, and refuses to compromise his strict orthodox interpretation of the Bible. In 1689, Jeremiah Peck leaves Greenwich for Waterbury, leaving his eldest son Samuel to become the ancestor of future generations of that family in Greenwich. In 1690, on May 20th of that year, John Meade Jr. becomes the town brander and must keep accounts of all persons' marks to identify animals and goods. In October 9th, 1690, the list of estates records 62 men with property worth a total of 2,911 pounds. In 1691, on April 4th of that year, Gershom Lockwood is granted rights to set up a sawmill on Brothers Brook. On April 14th, also the same day that year, John Banks is to maintain waterworks, trenches for feeding cattle, which he built near Byram Cove. On April 22nd of that year, 1691, Eliphalet Jones, writing from Long Island, appoints Joseph Ferris to replace him as an executor of William Grimes' will. And on May 12th, 1691, after years of delay, Joshua Webb and John Westcott are to build a corn mill and sawmill on the Mianus River, and each will receive four acres above the Westchester Path to accomplish this. On October 8th of 1691, the country rate is three pence on the pound, quote, and if any will pay the one-half of their rates in current money of New England, it shall be ex- accepted in lieu of their full rates, unquote. Otherwise, the rates are to be determined as follows. Let's see, winter wheat, I believe this is what I'm about to read is correct, is four shillings, six, d. I don't know, dollars per, um, uh, per bushel. Peas is two shillings, 6d per per bushel indian corn 2 to two shillings perhaps um uh, 6 6d six per per bushel pork let's see 3 pounds 10 shillings 0d uh, per barrel beef and it's spelled here in the book a b e i f 40 shillings per barrel, and oxen, cow, and horses, 20 shillings per per head. And then the final entry for the year 1691 is the Reverend Abraham Pearson Jr. is called as minister and agrees to serve the town. Well, congratulations to The people of Greenwich in 1691 finally getting a minister. All right, well, that all comes from Greenwich before 2000. Again, it was published as an updated revised edition of another Greenwich history book before and after 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. You can find this book for borrowing purposes um, in the Greenwich Library system. Uh, You might also find it at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store. You can call 203-869-6899 to find out. You also might be able to find uh, this uh, book on your favorite online bookseller. Well, as summer steams on, I want to thank you all very much for tuning into the 5th of August year 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast, which is, of course, hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. It's such a pleasure to have you uh, each week like this. And we've got more to come. Founded on july eighteenth, sixteen forty, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are very much a part of our history, and we're glad to have you. No no matter how long you've been here or how short a time, you are a part of our history. And we congratulate you for that <laughs> Alright, well the the Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast Is made possible by uh, my good Friend Mr. Peter F. Alexander, landscape Architect and Principal of Site Design Associates Also the Long Island Sound Institute Which is a project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum United States of America My good friend Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor Of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management And listeners like you Everywhere. You know, I really enjoy Hearing from uh, so many of you, and you can contact me anytime by going on your email to, uh, well, I should say, send a message to me at the following address Greenwich, a town for all at Now, you can also learn more about the show and listening to past shows. There's no paywall or anything like that, so it's all for free. You can send links to um, as many people as you uh, want to. We welcome you to to do that. And you can do that by going to the following address, greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Again, that's greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Both the show and I are on Facebook and uh, Twitter. By the way, so is uh, Mr. Peter Alexander and Site Design Associates in the Long Island Sound Institute. Please look for those and, uh, and please like those. It would be really nice if you would. Now, speaking of Facebook, uh, look for and join any of a number of Greenwich, Connecticut uh, interest groups. Um, these groups include You Know You're From Greenwich If... Images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, the Byram Neighborhood Association, Friends of Byram Park, and the Port Chester, New York Historical Archives. There's a lot of interesting stuff there and more. Now, our next show, my friends, is scheduled for the following Friday from today, and that would be August 12th, year 2022. And I... Bid I bid you to please go out enjoy the weekend ahead and the coming week. We've got a lot more stuff to um, uh, to share with you about the history of this extraordinary place that we call home, Greenwich, Connecticut. See you later now. Bye bye.